0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to George Koros about his book, The Innovator's Mindset, Empower Learning, Unleash Talent, and Lead a Culture of Creativity. George, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Trevor. Really excited to talk to you today. It's good to have you here. I'm wondering if, if we can begin by having you tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, um, right now I'm actually, um, I'm an author and a speaker and, uh, consultant. I work with, uh, districts all over the world, um, and, uh, do consulting talking about innovation, education, uh, teaching, learning, and leadership. Uh, just recently, literally probably in the last few days, um, I was formerly a uh, division principal of innovative teaching and learning with a school district, um, just outside of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And, uh, and I've worked there for probably the last 10 or 11 years. Um, yeah, and it's been an amazing journey. And uh, part of the reason why I think I'm so um, excited and passionate about the work that I do is because of the leadership there. Um, amazing superintendent, currently amazing superintendent before. Um, my deputy superintendent is probably the most influential person in my career ever. Uh, and they really focus on they really focus and still continuously focus on empowering people and so um, they really looked at what i brought to the table and they brought that out of me as opposed to make me fit into some type of structure so uh that's that's part of my background um i'm a new dad as well just have a baby girl who's not even a month old and uh and yeah just continuously you know looking at, you know, my life and how I embrace change, how my family embraces change and looking at um, how we do that in education as well.
0: You were this division principal for innovative teaching and learning. And uh, in the book, you describe that as being a unique position in your school district. It was one that, that you created. And as far as you know, it didn't exist in any other schools or districts until that point. And so I was wondering, can you kind of walk us through what a typical day looked like for you when you were in that role? Well,
1: that's the thing. There was no such thing as a typical day. Um, it's, it's a very unique position. And I would actually, um, I would challenge anyone to, to even see if there's anyone with innovation and education, uh, in their role, in their, in their job title. Um, I think six or seven years ago when we first started it. And to be honest with you, we didn't even know what innovation meant. We just thought, we need to look at this. We need to kind of explore this. And so I had the freedom and flexibility to kind of make a title with no job description, really. Uh, It wasn't really, it was kind of like, you know, there's certain things we're going to look at, but it was kind of just my superintendent was just like, go and do what you think you should do. And so um, you can see that part of my work was research and development um, we look at, um, you know, new trends in education, new things that we would see around the world. How do they actually, um, you know, implicate educators and, and what? how do we leverage them in our work? Um, part of my role is developing leadership. So um, we know that you can have some really amazing teachers, but if you have weak leadership, those teachers tend to... Um, become weak leave, And so uh, we wanted to really empower educators by, you know, uh, influencing our leaders and, and see what they're doing. Uh, but in any day, I could be working with um, principals. I could be consulting my superintendent. I could be talking to kindergarten students. Um, I could be working with parents. And so we really said, like, we need to be thoughtful of how we roll things out, but we also need to move quickly. And I think that's something that I had the flexibility to do. And and, um, the the, the really interesting thing about my role, uh, and I don't know if I talked about this in the book, is that um, I was actually part-time the entire time. And now when I say part-time, I'm meaning that one year I'm like 09 the next year is 0.8, and then I'm 0.5, 0.2. So I never actually worked a like a, a full teaching or a full educator schedule. Uh, and part of that reason why was because um, I was already speaking and consulting with you know schools and uh, districts around the world. Uh, not as much as I do now, obviously. Um, but the reason the reason why it was part time is because um, to be honest with you. Um, I'm going to districts around the world, speaking at them, but I'm also learning stuff from them while I'm there. And my district is paying me nothing at this point. And so I'm getting, like, free professional learning, even though I'm delivering it a lot of times to these districts. And then I come back with these ideas to my own school district, which helps accelerate everything, right? You have, you know, basically insider info to Mm -hmm. some of the the most forward-thinking um, institutions in the world. So it was a really unique position, and, and I wish more people would be open to it because I know there's a lot of people that have many of the abilities and skills that I do, um, and they are pushed in a position where you have to make a choice. You either decide you're going to become a speaker or an edu- or a consultant, or you stay in our schools, but you can't have it both ways. And I think that people are very scared of something that doesn't look like something we've always done yet we'll always say we're preparing kids for jobs that don't exist yet we're so scared to make them and i think that's i think that you know is a credit to the leadership in my school district that they were willing to do something and and to see where it went but they knew it was that you can give me any title you want they knew that i had an ability to affect change and so they put me in a situation where i could do that to my
0: best ability it's really interesting to think about the role now that you're describing it a little bit more. Uh, my first thought is, wow, that, that sounds great for you in that you, you kind of got to to decide what this role would be and, and follow your passions, but it also seems like uh, in some ways an ideal arrangement for the school district, because as you were traveling around, um, when you're not working for the school, you're bringing those new ideas in.
1: Totally. Yeah. It, 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 that's the, that's the thing right now again this you have to ensure that the person in that type of position is you know utilizing those opportunities right Mm -hmm. i could have easily went in uh spoken a place you know never looked at what they're doing never paid attention and just said well i'm not this is not part of my role right? right and separated the two but i saw a real intersection between the two right even when you work, like I would say that the district that I worked with for the last ten or eleven years is is extremely forward thinking, is extremely innovative, um, and their leadership is is second to none in the world, in my opinion. Uh, I, I think the world of the leadership in my in my school district, and I would work with other school districts that were nowhere near us in what they were doing. But the thing is, you can always find something that they're doing that's really great if you're looking. And so I was always looking. It did not matter, you know, where you were, is that I could pick something out. And maybe we wouldn't replicate it, and often we wouldn't, but there is somehow a spark or an idea or something that would share it. I'd be like, man, you know what? If we just did this and this and this, man, that would be amazing for our district. And so we would take those little things that we would see in these other places, and it was like we created a a greatest hits album. Like Mm -hmm. it's kind of like that. We would just take it, you know more like a you know a now music ten where you're not just it's not your own band right but it's you know getting the best music from other people so um i think it was a really yeah i think it was a really powerful thing and i and i wish more school districts would be open to people doing this because i think that they like i said they they really uh, the the the, the trade off for my district which was really unique it wasn't like i worked you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and had every Friday off. I could actually be gone for two weeks, two months at a time, just be based on my schedule. And so they just said, Hey, you know, we trust that you're doing what you need to do. And, you know, sometimes you're going to have to work on the road and, you know, to take care of, cause you can't obviously get back if you're in Australia. And so um, there's a lot of trust, but um, if you read, you know, like anything on Stephen, by Stephen Covey, you know, like when you trust people, everything goes faster. But when when there's like when you micromanage, because that's often a result of lack of a trust, it slows everything down. I, I think that was what was really unique. And and to be honest, with you it's not, it wasn't. This is not just me. This is not just me in my district that I'm the special person that you know got all these things that no one else would get. This is you know kind of the norm for the the way they did business in our school district. They, you know they put people in these really unique situations. And tend to, uh, get amazing things out of them. Our, um, our, uh, our leader of basically, you know, healthy living in our school district, um, she has a unique situation and she's one of the most forward thinking people in the world and she does nothing really with technology. Like it's not her, it's not her strong suit and she'd be the first one to tell you that. But she's one of the most innovative thinkers I've ever met. And um, I think that when you have flexibility to do a job, you know, when you have certain skills and abilities and you have some flexibility, it really does change things for you.
0: Do you think there are specific things that teachers and administrators can do uh, with each other to help cultivate that trust to then in, in time get more flexibility and do more fulfilling work?
1: Well, I think that the more, the more that you say no to people, the, the more they are not willing to try anything new and, or they just quit asking. And uh, they may, you might actually create somewhat of a subversive culture. So I think that even sometimes, we know, when someone comes to you with a, what they believe is a great idea and you don't necessarily agree with it, if they're willing to put in the work, if they're passionate about something, they're more likely to succeed with it. And so I think that just kind of having that mutual trust in one another, and I think that goes up too, right? A lot of times, um, you know, I would, when I was a principal, I was very transparent with my staff saying, sometimes I'm going to tell you things and your your input is not needed because the decision's already been made. And sometimes it's because the superintendent told me this is what has to happen. So I'm not going to waste your time by having you talk forever about it, pretending that mm. what you can do can change things. And that might seem pretty blunt to some people and maybe a little off putting, but I, I always was the person. And to be honest with you, if you pretended that my input mattered and then you just, you just got me to do what you needed me to do in the first place, i was like, why did you spend 30 minutes of my time? Like trying to get me to your solution. Just tell me what you need me to do. And so I think that when they knew that we did bring things up for conversation, if they were brought up for conversation, I wanted their feedback. I wanted, and that the direction was not yet determined. So I think that when you're transparent with people and they know that they trust you, but you know, I think that some people might have struggled with that in my own, you know, schools and district. And, um, I think that is, was part of it is that you try to be as transparent as possible as a leader. So that people know that, hey, sometimes they might not like the decision that is being made, but there's a reason that it has to be made. And, uh, sometimes it's out of your control. Sometimes it's just is what it is. And I think that, um, when you do ask for input that you value it and you, you're very thoughtful and you add it to whatever you're, whatever you're doing. I think that, um, building trust in those ways and having some of those conversations are, are really, really crucial.
0: And so it strikes me that um, the approach you're describing isn't necessarily one that all school leaders use. And so I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit more about um, how you came to work in schools and what kinds of experiences shaped your educational leadership and and what you see as the purpose of education.
1: Well, actually, I I never wanted to be a teacher, so it's kind of weird. Uh, for me to actually say out loud but um it was never in the cards for me. I, I, I really loved coaching. I wanted to be a basketball coach and um uh, and really the only way to do that was to become a teacher and then, you know, that's would give you quick access to, you know, the high school teams. <laughs> so um that was something I did. And I actually remember particularly in an interview um, one of the people hired me and they said, Hey, you know what? We're a little reluctant to hire you because we feel that coaching is your main focus and not necessarily teaching. I'm like, well, that'd be probably accurate. So, um, but, um, the, the kind of the interesting thing is, um, the more, the more I taught, I don't necessarily say I'd loved it more because that's not true. Um, But when I met some of the leaders that I have today uh, that i build really amazing professional relationships with, they really changed my thinking on education. They really changed, you know, how I saw myself in that role. And and they really empowered me, and they tapped into passions, and they brought things out of me that, you know, I I could never imagine. And so it really shaped my thinking. I I know that um, if it wasn't for one of my leaders, she actually just texted me. Her name's Kelly Wilkins. If I wouldn't have crossed paths with her, um, I was about two months away from quitting teaching. Um, But I think that one of the other elements of this, too, is that I see, I I do my best to see education and everything that comes my way. So um, I coached, played basketball, ref basketball. And there's so many things that I learned through that process that are totally relevant to education, that are totally, you know, relevant to how we do the work. And, uh, you know, um, you know, refing, having coaches and players yelling at you if they don't like something and you make a mistake. Um, you quickly learn that when you own up to a mistake as a referee, um, that the conversations are much different than trying to pretend you didn't do something wrong. And I remember, you know, you make some bad calls here and they just say, coach, Hey, that was a terrible call. My bad. And I'll do my best. And there's nothing to say after that. Right. And I think it, you know, builds little things like that. Um, but the other thing that's kind of really shaped my thinking is I, I have a brother who's in education uh, and I have a brother who's in business and um, they would probably, to be honest, you'd be on separate sides of the political spectrum and I would actually say that I kind of have, see both of their viewpoints and I see both of their, um, you know, their, their ways of thinking and I'm kind of somewhere in the middle of them. And I think that was a huge influence, um, on the way I see education. Cause I know that, um, I do look at it through my one brother's eyes as an educator and I see, you know, the power of learning and, but I also see like, you know, my brother who's in business. How does, how do outsiders look at education? So for example, um, one of the narratives, narratives you hear in education all the time is we need to teach kids to embrace failure. Well, my brother who's in business, uh, doesn't like, probably wouldn't be too excited about that because he's like, why are you teaching kids to fail? Like this is not what we want to do. Now he also understands that failure is part of the business process, but it's not something you ever embrace. It's not something that you learn to love um you, you you it's part of the process and so little elements of that little elements of both of my brothers really kind of shaped you know kind of how i see you know both aspects like we do have to pay attention to how the outside world pay, looks at education we can't just say well you just be, you never taught so you don't really get us well it's not really it's not really conducive to conversations we have to kind of be thoughtful of how the rest of the world looks at us
0: and that makes sense to me. I've always appreciated talking with people who know a lot about something that on the surface seems disconnected to education. But if, if you think about it long enough and you engage with it yourself, I think you can find that uh, good ideas can transfer to other fields.
1: Absolutely. And I think that when you look at like genius hour, totally spread, it's, you know, in schools all over the world. Well, basically that's been adapted from things like, um, you know, how 3M, the company, did some of their time or Google's 20% time. Um, people are taking some of these ideas, and the, the reason why these ideas are spreading is because we have access to them. Like, Google tells us what they're doing. You can see many aspects of Apple. Now, Apple is a lot more closed than something like Google, um, but you see how they're working, and people are taking these ideas because they have access to them and they're shifting them to how they do things in their classrooms, right? You see, um, you see the influence of, and like you see the influence of companies like Google where people just love working there and, you know, um, they, they create incredible things, uh, through the process. And that's a lot of development. Well, you look at what they're doing, motivation is crucial to work as it is to education, but, The other element of it, too, is you can actually see a lot of the environment that Google has created, which people thought was not. So now, you know, a lot of classrooms and schools are being developed where they look that way, where some of the best classrooms in the world, if you walked into them and I didn't tell you it was a classroom, you would never think that's where kids go to school. And I think that's a good thing. And I think that's a, I think that's a shift. And when you look at these, you know, you look and compare saying, you know, that's an amazing thing. And man, I would love to work there. How would that work for our kids? and actually asking those questions where like we never we never knew those things when i was younger like you they weren't accessible unless you went and bought a book and you know got the secrets behind something mm-hmm. but now they're free and they're in your face all the time and i think we need to access what other people are doing and 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 ask the question how does this apply to to our you know our situation our context as educators.
0: I love that question. It this seems like a good idea. How might it work in my classroom or at my school? Absolutely. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about how you came to write The Innovator's Mindset.
1: Uh, well, I think part of it was basically um, was just kind of my role, the work that I was doing, um, really kind of seeing where my passions were. And the really interesting thing is I really kind of sort of identified my passions um, through my own digital portfolio. Um, that I still maintain. It's GeorgeCross.ca. It's a blog slash portfolio, and uh, just kind of aggregating stuff over time. I'm like, man, I'm really interested in this notion of innovation, and I, you know, looking at mindset and you know what does that mean? How is the connection? Um, and the only reason I actually started a digital portfolio was because I wanted to understand how do digital portfolios work with kids. So I thought the best way to figure that out is to actually do it from the viewpoint of a learner, not as a teacher. And uh, and so kind of my role, kind of seeing, you know, what my passions were, what I wrote about, what where I seemed to gravitate, where my mind was. Uh, but it was like kind of having this journal. And what people are kind of, what kind of blows people away, um, to be honest, the book has done very, very well. I'm very proud of it. But it was written actually last summer over a two week span. So I I sat down, uh, went to Starbucks every day, and I wouldn't come home until I finished a chapter. And I did that um, for 15 consecutive days until it was done. And then I had to do the editing and all that other stuff. But the first draft was actually finished in two weeks. But it sounds quite, you know, amazing because that, you know, usually books take so much longer to write. But the reality of it is that it really took me six years. And when I say it took me six years is that when I look at my own portfolio, um, I was pulling ideas from there left and right. So I could actually go, um, I'm like, man, I really want to add that characteristics of the innovator's mindset. So I would literally go to Google and I'd write George Crow's characteristics of the innovator's mindset and I'd find my post and then I would somehow put it into the book or man, I love that talk by Barry Schwartz. This would fit in perfectly here. So I would just go George Crows, Barry Schwartz, Google, pull my own information and share it in that space. So the process was, you know, you don't see it like, you, when I, if I told someone, hey, if you write for five years and you write in this blog, I'm sure you could write a book in two weeks. They're not willing to necessarily write in the five years. But man, when I went through the process, I was so grateful that I did that prior because of how easy it was able to access my own thinking. Which which is like, do we put kids in those situations? Like how many times does a grade five student look at what they did in grade three and pull from that? Never, never. So they might have accrued knowledge over time, but they don't actually have access to anything tangible. So it's just, it's in their mind and nowhere else
0: that's a really strong case for engaging in regular reflection and, and organizing your thoughts that you can access them later. I mean, obviously if you're blogging and people are reading it, you're, you're doing a service for them, right? You're, you're sharing ideas. Absolutely. others can try them out, but then, you know, you also experience a benefit down the road when you wanted to kind of integrate all of these things together into a book.
1: It's unbelievable, right? Even, even, um, even sometimes like I'm writing some things now, And knowing what I do, um, I'll actually tag my own blog as hashtag book two. So later, if I just look up the tag hashtag book two, I'll see articles I've written and great stories that I like. And, you know, I'm like, man, I really would like to use the story in my next book. Mm -hmm. So little elements of that are helping me through that process. And I think that um, is a really important point is that do we have in education the vision to do something that will last us? Or that we'll continue for years. And the thing is, um, with the, with paper, the physical structure of paper, um, you're not going to have a kid in grade 12 bringing their notes from grade 9 on, because you can't access everything. It's too hard to find. But now with digital, I can easily do that. And so, we, we're in a, somewhat of a paper mentality of our thinking. Like, you know, it's fleeting and I can't access it. It's too bulky. You know, you wouldn't carry a supercomputer around with you, you know, when you were, you know, in the 1950s because obviously that's impossible. But now it's very possible, but are we leveraging it? Are we connecting? Are we utilizing those stuff? And I think that's a really important point. And uh, I, I think that uh, I, I'm very proud that I can talk about this stuff inside and out not because i researched it, but because I did it, and I think there's a difference now I see both I see it as research, but a lot of times when we research, when you hear about researchers, they're just looking at what other people did they're not actually doing it themselves, and I think that's something that's you know really made an impact on me is actually understanding this stuff from the viewpoint of
0: a learner and I think that's something an, an audience always appreciates is knowing that you know it firsthand,
1: absolutely, absolutely, and I think that. You you get a different perspective, and like when you when I look at all these things that I do, when I look at all the things that I you know try, people always ask me, well, how do you know this works best? And I know we talked about this previously before we even got on the on the podcast. Well, how I figure out if it learns best is I become the guinea pig. Mm-hmm. Like uh, we we often you know we want the kid to be the guinea pig and try it for the first time, but we only have so much time with them. And, and, you know, when we see, you know, and it's okay to, to like have kids where they struggle and you try something new with them, but when, how often are we willing to be the guinea pigs ourselves? Um, currently um, I'm actually doing a process. It's going to start next week and we're, we're doing a, a massive open online course on the book. So um, I wanted to try it and I've never done it before and thought you know what let's see what happens and so i put it out there and probably had about 50 people sign up well now it's up to 1200 people so i don't really know what i'm doing and now i don't really know what i'm doing in front of 1200 people the thing is that this process is helping me develop it's helping me shape and the question i always look at when i'm doing these things how does this benefit kids Mm -hmm. how will this not just like How how will my learning benefit kids? But how will this process benefit kids? I think that's a really important question. Like you go, a lot of people go to EdCamp and they learn all these amazing ideas. And EdCamp's like a very revolutionary way of professional learning. People absolutely love it. I think it was adapted from something else, you know, some other type, you know, from a business sector and it was adapted for education. It might be totally new. I have no idea. To be honest with you, I, I, I heard that it was adapted from something. But people don't necessarily look at the process of the learning. Mm-hmm. They only look at what they got from the day and how they're going to implement that in their class, as opposed to how the day was structured, how, what the day actually looked like. So do we actually look at the process, um, you know, and, and think about how is this valuable, how will this be valuable to my learner? Because educators will come back from ed camps and say, oh, my God, that was the best experience ever but then they never recreate it for their kids. So if it was such an amazing experience for you as a learner, why do we not actually try to recreate it for our students in some way? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we just like, oh, I got all these amazing ideas. I'm going to implement them in class. Not, oh, my God, that was such an amazing day. How am I going to do that? And what will were, what were the kids What it look like for the students?
0: Innovation is a word that a lot of people are using in education right now, and you kind of acknowledge that in the book. Can you share, what do you mean specifically when you talk about that?
1: Well, when you look at innovation, to me, is simply about uh, a new and better way of thinking, and, and it leads to some type of creation. So the, the, the terms new and better are very crucial when you're looking at innovation. Now, I, I differentiate that innovation could be either invention or iteration. And so one of the processes that I do all the time, or one of the things I do all the time in my own workshops I always talk about that definition and then I say to the people there, so I'm going to tell you something. Okay. Here's, here's an opportunity for you. Just for you being here today, I'm going to give each one of you an iPhone. How many of you would be excited about this? And it's like a hundred percent of hands, right? Mm-hmm. And some of them think I'm actually going to do it, right? Give them each an iPhone, which I never would, but, but just kind of that thought. But then when I say, when I say, yeah, but I didn't say which version. And then it's like you, people look at me and they're like, what? So if I was going to give you an iPhone, the original iPhone, would you still want it? Because it didn't have a camera. There was no app store at the time. There was no, there was no, uh, there was no way to, it was only uh, internet, phone, text messaging, and I don't really, and music. I don't think there was really that much else, you know, calendar, stuff like that. And now you look at the, now you look at that. So the reason why I talk about innovation is iteration or invention. The iPhone's a beautiful example of this. So the original iPhone was an innovation that was invention. It was totally new, something people hadn't seen before. Now there's other versions, other companies made similar things, but not like the iPhone. And we were so excited about this. Yet if you look, if you look at the iPhone seven just came out Mm -hmm. and people are complaining it's not, So much better than the iPhone 6, which if you looked at it compared to the original version, um, then we would be like, Oh my God, this is so much better than what we do. Like it actually has like an optical zoom, digital zoom, and has all these other elements of it. And so that it's still innovative because it's still better than what it was before, but it's, it's an iteration where the original iPhone was an invention, both innovations, both different. And you can kind of see in the same product, but you look at, how much we complain about how something is not so much better than its predecessor from simply a year ago, yet we're comfortable doing practices we did 20 or 30 years ago mm-hmm. and no we complaints. So that's where I struggle with this. Right. And I think that's why we're looking at it. Now, if you look at the term of best practice, and this is kind of some of my thinking after the book, it's not that we're ignoring best practice, but we're saying best practice doesn't, will not say best practice forever. It rarely ever does. And if something was truly best practice, everybody would do it all the time. But if something is given, like, if you say, well, 85% of students, you know, love this method of reading, well, then, or love this method of teaching writing or whatever, well, then, ultimately, 15% of kids, that's not best practice. Mm -hmm. So what do you do with those 15% of kids? And that's where the teacher is so crucial, is their own willingness to to shape and think and create new processes so they look at each child as an individual and give them what they need. And when you look at innovation, if it's truly better, it eventually will become best practice. Um, So if it's only new but not better, it will never become best practice. But if it's better, it should become best practice. But the thing is, is that best practice is not a constant. Best practice is something that you need to constantly reflect, revise. And I have a graph on the tree, and I'll try to explain it the best I can, you know, simply using words. There, there's arrows going back and forth that, you know, you can go from innovation to best practice and back and forth They're revise and remix. There's no continuum. It's not like you innovate, then best practice, and reflect. It can just go back and forth. It's an extremely messy process. But we have to constantly look at because because um, every year, you know, some teachers have the same curriculum and the same timelines that they're going to teach the stuff for the same subject area every single year. But there's something that changes every year that we need to really pay attention to, and that's the kids. That every year you get a new batch of kids and they're nothing like the year before. And even if there are, there's differences. So how can I actually tell you in September what I'll be teaching in November without actually ever meeting my students and actually understanding what their needs are, where they're at? So I think that's why having teachers really think this way about, you know, When do they go from best practice? When do they, you know, try to be innovators? And kind of going back, that's the messiness of this. But I think that we're really trying to look at the needs of each individual child, not simply painting them all with the same brush. And that's why innovation is so crucial in the work that we're doing.
0: I think a lot of people would acknowledge that we can conflate innovation with expensive technology. So I'm wondering if you can share some examples of innovation in schools that, that you've observed that don't rely on or that do rely on existing tools or smaller budgets.
1: Um, what you see, what you, you see when, I, when I give that example, for exa- uh, if you looked at it, people would say that the smart board was an innovation. Now, if you go to the term of it actually being new and better, there are some elements of that. Because, but was it actually better for the learning, or was it simply a, a better way for us to do, you know, um, traditional teaching? And the scary thing about technology is that if it, it accelerates everything, so if you are doing bad practice and now you have technology added to that, it will actually accelerate bad practice, which is a scary thought. So. You look at these schools um, on limited budgets, you know, and this is all over. There's not many, especially in the public school system, that, you know, have endless amounts of money. I think that they're really re-looking at what their structures are, how they're doing things. Like, I know it's going to sound weird because I tell people this, and every time I say it, there's an audible gasp. But uh, one of the new schools in our district um, actually has no photocopier. And people are like, what? How is that even possible, Right. Well, the thing is, is that you know every kid's bringing a device. Every kid has it. So why do you need to spend fifteen thousand dollars on a photocopier when you really don't need it? And I think sometimes when you do that, you know, people will use the photocopier not because they need it, but because it's there. And so they'll just go to that process. But when you start bringing these devices, you start looking at things differently. Something's got to go. You can't do everything you've always done plus add other things. You have to rethink what you're doing. And I think that's I think that's one of the shifts here is that it's really important to um, look at like what are we doing how many schools go one to one plus change nothing about their supply list there's something's gotta go like why are we making like why are we spending all this money and kids are still bringing the exact same things It doesn't seem to make that much sense so you have to 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 rethink um this notion of what's going on in your school and and people will say to me. You know, I love all this stuff, George, but I don't know when i have of time for this. I'm like, well, I'm not adding to your plate. I'm trying to get you to think differently. So you can't do everything plus this. You have to rethink what you're doing. And just little simple things like we don't – I never ask people to, you know, all at once just change everything that they're doing in their classrooms. It's just change one thing. Just look at one thing you're doing and and rethink it and see how could you do it in a way that's, you know, more effective for students, uh, could be much more powerful. And what is it replacing? And I think that's a, a very simple way to kind of move about it. And as you start doing that one thing, then it maybe becomes a second thing, then a third thing, and then all of a sudden you notice your teaching is totally different than it was a year prior. And I think that's uh, that's what we're trying to get people to think, how we're getting them to think differently.
0: I appreciate uh, your willingness to, to concede that it, it is impossible to do everything you've always done and all of these new ideas you're being exposed to. And so we have to be creative in uh, finding ways to integrate new and old and uh, critically looking at what we've done before and uh, determine what's worth keeping and what we should discard for something different.
1: Yeah, and I think that, like, I work with, you know, several districts and they'll, you know, I'm having conversations with them and they'll they'll get four or five different platforms of technology that they want to use. And I'm like, like... (laughs) How do you expect everyone to be like fluent in four by the end of the year? Do you really need four? Like, what are you what are you doing with this? And I think that um, this is a main tenet of the book: is the idea of less is more. Is sometimes we try to do everything, and we tend to then we tend to actually do everything, but in a mediocre way. Mm -hmm. Where what we're trying to do is basically go deep. We're trying to think: how do we learn a couple things and really go deep with what we're doing? And not only does it eventually save money, it's actually a better process. Um, I, I know that I do talk a lot about technology, and I see it as um, not it, – it's somewhat crucial to innovation because we can do things better than we ever could before. And and so you could have said that 20 years ago. And so we have to look at it, its presence and, and why it's actually important. Um but that doesn't mean we have to do, like, you know, as soon as Pokemon Go comes out, you don't have to figure out how does Pokemon Go, um, you know, how can we use Pokemon Go in the classroom? And a lot, like there was posts, like I didn't even know what Pokemon Go was because it was out for two days and people had already written these posts trying to, edu- you know, you know, edify it, you know, try to try to tap into everything. And it's like, you haven't even really got down what you were doing before and now you're trying to move on to the next thing. Um, so I think that, sometimes we have to like be very explicit when we get people to slow down and think about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And does it promote
0: depth or, or breadth? Not all innovation is, is created equally. If you're, if you're amazing, you know, a uh, pianist, then
1: you just didn't pick that up because you saw in a concert. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you thought, Ooh, that looks cool. And then you become amazing. There's years and years of work that go into that. And so do we have the patience to, you know, like look at stuff and say, you know what, I know there's all these other things, but are we really, have we gone as deep as we want to go in this space? And, you know, I think that's a lot of times, um, I think that's, you know, and I know Apple is maybe, you know, get criticized because, uh, you know, ever since Steve Jobs gone, it might not be as innovative as it once was, Um, but Part of their innovation is they don't do all, like, they don't just try to create every single product. They do
0: a few things extremely well. I'm interested in that example of the school without a photocopier because it reminds me of another example you share in the book about a kindergarten teacher who was using Facebook to communicate with parents all the way back in 2010. Um, so way ahead of his time. Uh, Now, of course, it's much more commonplace for teachers to use social media to communicate with families. So uh, I'm wondering if there are any practices you've observed more recently that maybe just one or a handful of teachers are using that you think could possibly become the norm in another five or six years.
1: Um, Well, one of the things that I'm really promoting, and I think that is a really valuable process, um, is the access to... Uh, really rethinking how we communicate outside of the classroom. And so, for example, um, you know, the the teacher was talking about Matt Gomez. He was using Facebook, but, you know, Facebook was a totally different medium at that time. Um, the, the way we, you know, share videos, and, you know, I don't think it was as easy as it was, you know, now. But now... Um, we're having teachers, you know, some of them are using Twitter and uh instead of like doing a classroom newsletter that, you know, they begrudge, you know, on Friday afternoons that they're writing because they promised parents it would be out every single Monday. Um they're using simple things like Twitter and they're just, you know, sharing videos. And um I, I always say to the groups that I'm working with, what do you think I would rather see? Um the your newsletter you put all this work into that sits on my fridge if it gets home, or the video of my daughter explaining what she learned today. And, or, you know, talking for the class. And not only is it a, a different form of communication, um, she's actually actively reflecting on what she's learning. She's also developing some oral skills through the process. Uh, she's understanding, you know, her, her footprints and, and, you know, what it means to connect. So it's not just a one-off. And you look at the two examples. One of them, in my opinion, is not only better; it actually is less time, right? Mm. And it's it's actually not just for communication skills; it's you know the learning skills. And a lot of time, a lot of time, the the work that we do in education actually um, is not just work; it's learning. Uh, when we spend hours and hours of our time um, looking up YouTube videos to find the perfect video on probability. And then we show it, and only 10 kids actually connected with it out of 25. Well, we actually took some really good learning opportunities away from our kids, too, like the, the ability to curate information, critical thinking skills. Is this a good video? Would other people watch this? Would they actually, you know, connect with this? And I think that we have to ask, when are we taking away the learning from our child and actually from our students and actually doing, spending more of our time doing this? And I think, like, little things like this, understanding, you know, how we use these mediums, uh, to connect, you know, kind of do do the things that we do have multiple purposes? Do they connect with learning? Are they creating opportunities for communication? I think those are all really important things to explore.
0: So fostering change within schools is is really slow and difficult, and not only because it's it's easier to just do things the way you've always done them, but because it, it feels safer and it, it makes sense to err on the side of caution when you're you're handling kids' futures. Right, and so I think a lot of teachers are, are risk averse. I'm wondering how you view the tension between sort of accepting that which is good but not great, and perhaps avoids something worse, with ultimately trying to do something different that could potentially raise the bar.
1: Well, I think that yeah, it has to be calculated, right? Like mm-hmm. you don't you're not throwing kids off the the top of the school building to teach them about gravity and hope they don't break their leg, right? Like this is not. <laughs> This is not, you know, uh, when you, you have to be thoughtful in when you're taking risks and what that actually, you know, what that looks like. Um, I know that when we talked earlier, uh, one of the comments you were saying is like, you know, when we deal with kids, we feel the risks are a lot higher. Well, we do, but when you look at certain companies when they lose money and that could be their job, they look at that as as really horrible too. When you look at, you know, doctors and nurses not using certain technology and could actually be more harmful to a patient and they could lose their lives over this. Well, they look at that as pretty serious too. We're spending a lot of time focusing on what could go wrong as opposed to what could go right. Mm -hmm. And if, if we were to do this, what could it actually lead to? And so I think that's a really big shift for educators is we're so worried about what could go wrong. And I look at, you know, here's, here's an example. I can look at risks both ways. Okay. So um, we were worried that if we start putting kids online, they might find inappropriate things that there might be something bad online. And, you know, parents will be upset with us and, you know, they might've seen something they're too young to see. And I get that, but here's the risk on the other side. If we don't teach them, then, they are going to probably find inappropriate things and we're probably responsible for this and they might actually post inappropriate things. And so they might've went through school, they might actually become valedictorian, but then when you go look at their Twitter account or their Instagram account or their YouTube account, um, then look at all the bad things they posted, which now negates everything they've ever done in school. Because when we Google everybody Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that changes things. So there's risk there too, but, but, But we use the term of like, ooh, I don't want to take this risk because something might go wrong. Whereas I'm saying, hey, there's there's risk usually on both sides. If you don't teach them, there's risk there too. So what could possibly go right if you actually teach them stuff? And so now we have kids, um, you know, we have kids who are... Um, sharing things online, getting opportunities that, you know, didn't exist before connecting with other people, you know, networking, uh, creating opportunities. Some kids are like, you know, there's a young lady that I, I, um, uh, connected with and I, I read some of her stuff. She actually got into USC, uh, not on her grades. Her grades weren't high enough. She contacted them and she said, you should Google me. And they Googled her and they said, we would love to have you here. And the interesting thing about that is that a lot of her online presence was done in her English class because her teacher took time and said, Hey, you know, this is how people are connecting. We want you to create this about me page. We want you to have like a portfolio. We want it to be online. And so if it wasn't for the sake of her teacher willing to do that, then, um, then, then she wouldn't have that opportunity. So when you look at the risk of him not doing it, if she would actually apply to get in her dream school and he didn't do it, she wasn't getting in. So I think that you have to look at what could go right to the process. And, and you look at the narratives, like look at the narratives of education, going to schools. You'll see this all the time. There'll be signs that say things like don't bully. So is our goal in education? Hey, let's not raise horrible people. Cause it's a pretty low bar as opposed to saying, go lead, go do amazing things. And if you have a sign that says don't bully versus a sign that says go lead, neither of them is going to create the the output that you're looking for. It's the thinking of what made you put up the sign in the first place. Do you try to empower kids or you just try to make sure they don't do anything stupid? And I think that when you think that way, when you have signs that you know say that stuff, it's a reflection of how the school thinks. It's a reflection of how the teacher's try to empower people, how they look at kids, how they can make a difference, right? As opposed to just constantly telling them what they shouldn't do. It's like you're trying to inspire them on what they could do.
0: Um, Well, well, George, I've taken up a lot of your time, so I just want to ask you a couple more questions before we go. And uh, so first, I'm wondering, what are three other books you might recommend to our listeners if they've enjoyed reading your work and uh, listening to our conversation?
1: Um one a book that I really enjoyed reading, um, that was that just came out was uh launched by John Fencer and A. J. Giuliani it talks about design thinking. Uh it's a really great book. Uh really makes design thinking attainable basically at all levels. And uh they're just really the other thing that really, you know, I love about the book and uh you know, full disclosure, these are two of my friends, um, but they became friends through social media, um, is that they'll, if you have questions, you just tweet them and the authors will talk to you. They'll give you more resources. They'll connect with you. So I, it's a living book. Um, another one I like is, uh, influencer, the new science of leading change. I think, uh, it's a really powerful book on how you get other people to, um, move forward and, and, um, what they're, you know, How do you, how do you not only like a lot of times when we look at leadership, we think about it from, you know, like a a hierarchy, but do we look at teachers influencing other teachers? Do we look at educators creating an accountability to one another? You know, if you, if we both teach grade two and you're not really pushing it on what is possible for your kids, does the other grade two teacher just let that go? Because to me, it's not acceptable, right? And so how do we actually cross the hallway, influence one another? How are we accountable to know one another? And I think that book uh, talks a lot about that. Uh, Another book, one of my favorites, uh, is Humanize. It's not necessarily well-known. It it, it actually... um, It's a really interesting book because the title, when you think about it, it talks a lot about technology, Uh, even though the title is Humanize, but it talks about how technology can actually bring us closer together. And it was a really... um, uh, influential book in my learning. So uh, it's something that I, I really enjoyed reading. And uh, I think, you know, it's, it's a great kind of shows kind of, you know, some of the shifts that are
0: happening in society. What are some things you're working on now and how can our listeners follow your work, George? Uh, well, um, as I
1: said earlier, we have this uh, giant MOOC happening. It's immooc.org. And it's a great opportunity because it's free. For one, and uh, the the really powerful thing about this is um, a lot of people that are joining are have already read the book, so they don't necessarily need to go deeper into it, or you know. But it's actually not about you listening to the author and hearing his thoughts about the book, even though that's a little bit part of it. We're actually having assignments for people where they create their own uh, if they don't have one, we give them prompts for blogging every week. And so um, we're really trying to build this like community of, you know, educators with an innovators mindset, but they're, they're going to learn from one another. So um, I use some very traditional platforms like, you know, traditional in our world today as Twitter and Facebook groups to connect these people But I actually say, hey, go make your own groups. If you want to do boxer, if you want to go do this, you want to go do this. You can make your own spaces. Like you don't have to invite all thousand. You might want to break off into little groups and and share your stuff. But you have the you have the ability to kind of go do this what you want because it's the whole notion of innovation. And is that you know if I could write a book, which I didn't, right? If I could write a book and tell you, you know, step by step how you become innovative, and then you could go do it. Well, that's not going to, that book's not going to last more than, you know, the time it took to publish and get it out. But if I can get you to try to shape your thinking and to, you know, see yourself as an innovator, um, which is part of the process of this MOOC is that people are asking questions they're creating stuff. They're challenging ideas. They're learning from one another. Um, they're, they're, they're connecting with people on a global perspective. Um, I think it's a a really great opportunity. And so we'll see where this actually goes. Um, Like I said, it's something I've never done before. I have Katie Martin. She's uh, the director of professional learning at the University of San Diego. She's a very good friend of mine. Uh, She had a lot of help and influence on the book. So she'll be kind of doing this with me, but we kind of have some ideas of where we're going to go, but it's going to shift each week based on the needs of the participants because that's what I talk about all the time. I can't say, you know, I can't, say to people, Hey, it's really important to tailor things to the learner, but here's the six weeks and here's how it's all going to play out. And you fit into this mold. We're going to shift on how things are going. So, um, that's a big project I'm working on right now. So we'll we'll see how that goes. Uh, Like I said, I wasn't ready for the over thousand people that signed up, but (laughs) we'll see what happens. It's pretty exciting.
0: That sounds like a a great way to, uh, to continue to engage your, your readers and help them to, to implement some of the ideas you talk about in the book. (laughs) So, uh, George, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate uh, all you do and I appreciate you sharing uh, your learning with other people. So I look forward to uh, hearing the podcast and uh, connecting with others.